This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. If you've spent any time on social media over the past few years, there's this word that's been popping up more than usual lately. Algorithm. Algorithm. How the Google algorithm works. TikTok algorithm. Algorithm heavy websites. Highly secretive algorithm. Hold up, don't scroll. Let me ask you something first. Can someone please explain how this algorithm works? It feels strange to think back to a time when we weren't so concerned with social media algorithms. Algorithms were kind of this nebulous mix of code that we knew controlled what we were seeing in our feeds, but I don't think most of us were that bothered by it. We kind of accepted this idea that algorithms were a good thing, that they were there to serve us more of what we love, which is true to some degree. Really, since 2016, I'd say, that rosier depiction of algorithms has completely disintegrated. Now, when we talk about algorithms, we're talking about issues like mental health, addiction, political interference, and government regulation. I wanted to get a better understanding of where we are now with social media algorithms. And I know, it's a lot to unpack, so I'm going to be tackling this topic in three separate episodes. Up first, what we know and don't know about algorithms. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. To help me get the lay of the land with social media algorithms, I reached out to Dr. Kelly Cotter. She's an assistant professor in the College of Information Sciences and Technology at Penn State University, and her focus has been on the ethics surrounding algorithms, but more specifically, the black box problem. That is to say, the lack of transparency around how these algorithms really work. Dr. Cotter, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, no, there's a lot to dive into. So I so I want to start, oh, way too much actually. <laughs> but you know, I want to start by asking, I mean, I remember when algorithms on social media were this slightly mysterious thing that just gave us more of what we wanted in our feeds. And of course, it still very much is that, but it's become so much more weighted as we talk about how divisive social media has become, how addictive it's become. So when did you notice that shift occur? Well, I think you're right that there's been this kind of mounting awareness of algorithms presence in our everyday lives when we're using Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all those things. But I think since 2016, there's probably been maybe a, a steep increase in people talking about the impact that algorithms have. And that's for a number of reasons. The obvious events that stick out like the 2016 election where we saw a lot of issues with misinformation and, um, and disinformation and kind of conversations about polarization that social media are often attributed to um, or that are attributed to social media. Besides that, 2016 was when Instagram transitioned to an algorithmically ranked feed. Twitter also introduced an algorithmically ranked feed. So that's kind of like this key moment where I think it's sort of been brought more in front of mainstream audiences in a different way. Right. And what do you see as some of the most pressing issues when it comes to understanding how social media algorithms work? So this kind of gets at my favorite subject, 
because I think it's one of the core issues that we're often talking about in relation to algorithms, which is the black box problem. Tell me about it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is the idea that algorithms are opaque and it's difficult to understand what they do or anticipate what kinds of outputs or outcomes they'll produce. And this is for a couple different reasons. So first, of course, the companies that create the algorithms, and a lot of times we're talking about social media platforms, of course, but there's other kinds of algorithms, but let's say social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube, they tend to share very little information about their algorithms because they are proprietary. They're sort of like trade secrets um, and they're part of the way that they monetize and continue to earn, generate revenue. So it's important to keep that, that secret sauce under wraps because they want their business to do well and all the other platforms are their competitors. So there's a lot of little information that's shared. And it's not just about the competition element also. There's also the element of like, if we share, the more information we share, the greater possibility that we're going to be met with critical questions or comments that we're going to have to deal with. And then the other aspect of it is that algorithms have become really, really complex. And they deal with these massive data sets that are analyzing thousands of different features in the data sets. They are often operating with maybe minimal human oversight. And usually the algorithms that are used now on most platforms are machine learning algorithms. So they kind of evolve as they get new data, as um, interfaces change, as populations of platforms change. So as user bases kind of like grow more diverse or they, they change and different kinds of groups are on there. So the algorithms are sort of constantly evolving and then also constantly being tweaked by the platforms to continually improve what they do and their performance and to, to optimize towards the goals that the platforms are interested in. So in a lot of ways, they're really complex, they're unstable objects, and platforms are sharing very little information about them. And these things come together, creating this very difficult um, barrier for understanding what algorithms do, mm-hmm. um, why they might produce a particular outcome, and even thinking about like what kinds of anticipating the impacts that they might have can be challenging. Yes, because algorithms are incredibly opaque. And so how do we do we start to break through? Because obviously there are a lot of government regulations and bills and acts that are coming through to really, you know, challenge big tech, specifically these social media platforms, on making it more transparent about how these platforms function. So, you know, what do you think is needed for there to be this less less of a black box experience with these platforms because like you said they're not going to give up the information themselves <laughs> like they're holding it very close to their chest maybe they could be forced to give up some of the information and i think that's an important part because regulation is is probably the most powerful tool that we have to ensure that we get information that we need but even if platforms were compelled to share like the source code of their algorithms, that would also require some interpretive work for somebody to come in and say like, okay, here's the source code, but what does it mean? Like, what right. is it doing? And even with that source code, even with people who are very technically competent and you know experts in this area, may not be able to look at the source code and tell you like, oh, well, here's the, here, it's gonna create misinformation or something like that. Right. Like, because the, the effective algorithms is very much about like coming together of the users who create the data and the algorithms that are designed to optimize towards some goal and the the developers who are continually tweaking the algorithm and the platform interfaces that establish the the choices that users can make on the platforms and then feed data back into the algorithm. So even with that very 
comprehensive amount of transparency, there's always going to be something like elusive, I guess, about, mm. about algorithms. But that doesn't mean that transparency isn't valuable or useful in some way. It just means that there are limits to what we can know, which is true of like most things. But yeah, there's always going to be some some kind of like bound to what we can know about them. So yeah, transparency is really valuable and we can follow European Union's model by trying to compel some more sharing of information with stakeholders. There's different models of doing it too, uh, where you might think about having like an intermediary person between the platform and the public audience that kind of Mm. um, could be trusted with looking at the source code and and interpreting it and then sort of like providing helpful information. There could be, I mean, Facebook has played around with this oversight board, which has seemingly been a complete disaster, but (laughs) something like that could be, you know, helpful having this sort of like third party board to regulate things. There's kind of coalitions within the industry too, between the major platforms to kind of establish some ethical frameworks to try to, you know, keep things on on the rails and to establish standards for sharing information, disclosing information. I mean, in some ways, platforms will say they can never share everything that they know about the design functionality of their algorithms, because another reason, which I didn't mention before, that platforms will sort of limit the information that they share about their algorithms is that they're worried that if we share information about how the algorithm works, that people are going to manipulate that information to gain maybe unearned visibility, per se. So people that will gain the system. So having complete transparency or something like that could open the companies up to that threat. So that's another way that even compelling platforms to be more forthcoming is valuable and good. But it's also probably the case that we'll never be able to truly have this kind of like ideal of complete transparency. And from just studying this space for as long as you have, I mean, like what have you gleaned from the little bit that these platforms have given about their algorithms? Because as we talked about, there's been a few blog posts here and there from like TikTok and Instagram being like, hey, this is how this works. This is how we do that. And it's usually very obvious in some ways like of course you know the more comments you get the more likes you get that's obviously going to affect like what you see and everything like that i know that you you you've been reading between the lines more than i have on this so in reading between the lines of like what these platforms have directly told us about how their algorithms work what can you glean from it give me the dirt give me the real (laughs) the real sauce here like i said it's a lot of what they say is kind of obvious and so i really want to like understand and i'm looking toward you To be honest, though, I think that what they share is usually more like it's more of a PR device than it is Mm. really anything that's super informative, as you're saying, because they're sharing very obvious information. Usually they're sharing information because of complaints about them not being very transparent. But then the information that they share is largely information that most people could easily learn or understand, you know, without those disclosures. And, and a lot of it also is made up of kind of like rationales. So not just this is what the algorithm does, but it does this because we want X to happen or like, you know, and usually it's like we want to make sure that you're seeing the things that you care about or you're making real connections with people or you're getting the most newsworthy or credible information and things like that. There's kind of a lot of filler or like, you know, couching of the information in these really lofty goals that they have. 
Shortly after my interview with Dr. Cotter, Meta had its first quarter earnings call. And Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that the content you see in your Facebook and Instagram feeds would shift away from who you actually follow and lean on AI to recommend content it thinks you're interested in. Social content from friends and people and businesses you follow uh, will continue being a lot of the most valuable, engaging, and differentiated content for our services, but now also being able to accurately recommend content from the whole universe that you don't follow directly unlocks a large amount of interesting and useful videos uh, and posts that you might have otherwise missed. Overall, I think about the AI that we're building not just as a recommendation system for short-form video, but as a discovery engine that can show you all of the most interesting content that people have shared across our systems. The short version? Mark wants Facebook and Instagram's feeds to be in better competition with TikTok. When you log into TikTok, the first thing you're greeted with is your For You page, an endless scroll of content from people you follow, but more importantly, content from people the algorithm thinks you should follow. This discovery-first approach to a feed has been a major factor in TikTok's growth, and the general consensus of TikTok's algorithm is that it's good. Maybe too good. TikTok users and creators alike have been trying to figure out the secret sauce of what ends up in the For You page. And after the break, we're going to hear from a software engineer turned content creator who thinks she's hacked TikTok's code. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So we know social media algorithms can be pretty opaque, and the information these companies share about what surfaces in your feed may not be the full story. We also know that TikTok's algorithm has become the one to beat as Facebook and Instagram pivot away from family and friend updates to more of a content discovery feed. But how does TikTok's algorithm work? The New York Times actually obtained verified documents from TikTok's engineering team in Beijing that explain to non-technical employees how the algorithm works. A computer scientist who reviewed these documents for the time said TikTok's recommendation engine is, quote, totally reasonable but traditional stuff, end quote, and that the platform's advantage is in the massive volumes of data and a format structured for recommended content, i.e. the For You page. But I wondered, what does this look like from a creator standpoint? Scrolling through TikTok, I came across one creator who went from about 4,400 followers to 170,000 in about a month. I'm Felicia, I'm a software engineer, and two months ago, I made this video. I'ma figure out this TikTok algorithm. I think it's safe to say I figured it out. That's Felicia Coleman, a software engineer turned content creator who joined TikTok in November of last year. And as someone who writes code for a living would do, she started to reverse engineer and experiment with TikTok's algorithm. I reached out to Felicia to get her perspective on how these algorithms work, both from a creator's point of view and as an engineer herself. So when you joined TikTok, and really, I mean, for any other social platforms you're on now, like, how did you approach it, knowing that you have this background, knowing that, you know, you you probably think in code? <laughs> like, how did you, what was, what, was, what was your initial thoughts when you joined TikTok? You know, I tried a bunch of different things every single day. I was trying new things. And the following day, what I would do is I would, do a, a retrospective. I would see which posts from the previous day worked best and I would double down on those. And, and that was the process that I used for a, a few weeks at a time. So that's pretty much the mentality that I had going into it. 
But I think it's it's worth saying that there are also things that I observed. There's like output, but then there's also like input, right? Mm -hmm. And so being an engineer, I just started to observe a bunch of different things, right? Oh, wow, this video worked well. What is a pattern that I can recognize in every video that does well? Oh, I found the pattern. I need to have at least 10% of a ratio between my views to my likes. Oh, that's a pattern. Oh, I found another pattern. I need to have a healthy views to comments ratio of, of at least 2%. So I started noticing all of these patterns. I started writing them down, having some sort of a checklist. That in conjunction with the experimentation mentality is really what allowed me to go from zero to 300K in less than 90 days. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so in recognizing those patterns, I mean, because obviously, you know, TikTok has best practices for, you know, getting your content seen, getting on getting on the all-important for you scroll. So for you, like in, in recognizing these patterns, like what was different? Then sort of like the standard, like, oh, make sure you have great content, make sure it's engaging, make sure this, all, all that we know. But right. from your research, from you kind of digging into this a little bit, what did you find that differed from like what we already know about, about possibly winding on the For You page? Let me give a little bit of context quickly so that way I can answer that in the best way. So I downloaded TikTok in November. And I tried for two months straight. I was posting, you know, once a day for two months and none of my videos were getting over 300. I couldn't figure out why. I still kind of had that experimentation mentality where I was, it was like, oh, this video got seven likes and that one got six. So no matter the scale, right? I still had that mentality. But what ended up happening was, you know, I realized that I was posting what I wanted to post. I wasn't caring enough about the user's experience. And I didn't realize that until I did kind of like a huge shift in my approach to the content. So initially the content that I was posting was, you know, I was posting my outfits. I was showing my apartment, all of these things that I thought were like super cool. Just flexing as one does on just, TikTok. Just a casual, yeah. I just wanted to casually <laughs> flex, you know, but I am a talkative person in real life. And so one day I just happened to be ranting and I genuinely, I was curious. This was my introduction to actually caring about the user, right? I was genuinely curious as to what other people thought about what I was saying. I posted that video and that was the first video that got over 2,000 views. And that is what really started the, the fast-paced, iterative approach. That exact same day, I happened to come across a TikTok where it was someone and they were saying, if you want to blow up your TikTok, just post 10 a day. Mm. And I looked to my husband and I said, you know, 10 is an audacious number. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. That would explain why a lot of people can't get there or don't want to do there or are not willing to do what's required to get there. But it also would explain how you have, you know, there are some of these accounts on TikTok where it's like, you have millions of followers? Well, that would explain that as well, right? So it would explain the entire spectrum if there was something- Shady, shady, shady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this account's blowing up, you're blowing up? Okay, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I mean, people blow up on TikTok for the craziest things, right? Like, it's in, it's insane, the the disparity or, or just the, the range of content that goes viral. 
And so I said, you know what? That would kind of explain it. And so I started doing that and I committed to it because I knew it was going to be hard. I'm a goal-oriented person. So I committed. I said, I'm going to do this for 30 days. I'm going to post 10 a day for 30 days. And I tracked my followers every single day. I posted 10 videos and every day I did the retrospective to look back and see what videos performed well. And I built that into the 10 for the next day. And I did that over and over and over. That's pretty much how it went. I already mentioned some of the things that I did notice. One of the other patterns that I noticed was this sort of milestone mechanism. So that's what I talked about in in a TikTok. And I didn't realize that that was a, a nuanced observation. But now that I know, I'm like, oh yeah, let me tell everyone about this because this is actually really important. Tell me about it. Tell us about it. (laughs) Yes, let me tell you about it, Casey. So the TikTok algorithm, I have observed that it has some sort of a milestone mechanism. We all, most people, kind of already understand this because there is already an understanding that your first TikTok video is probably going to do okay. You know, you probably will end up getting somewhere like 500 or more views just because it's your first one. Typically, the second video and the third video have less views than the very first one. That is indicative of a milestone that you are being rewarded for. So why would it stop there? That's the other thing. When it comes to posting 10 a day, you're able to see these patterns fast-paced. So what I noticed was that every couple of videos, it's almost like I would be put into another bracket. Like for a while, my videos were, you know, 2000. But once I hit a certain point in my posting, all of a sudden now my videos are getting 3000 or 4000. I started to notice that there were all sorts of um, milestones along the way. And that really helped me to wrap my head around the motivation that was going to be required in order for me to make my quota and reach my goal of 10 a day for 30 days. I started to understand that. By posting more, I was going to be able to get rewarded more by the TikTok algorithm, which was going to feed into my motivation. So that's one thing that I really always like to bring up because a lot of people, they think that there's something wrong with the algorithm, but it could be something wrong with their motivation structure. So if if someone is posting once a day, let's just say hypothetically that the the next milestone after your first one is your 10th video. Well, if you're posting once a day, spending hours on one post trying to make it perfect, then you're not going to experience that boost or being put into that next bracket for over a week. By then, people have either quit, they've lost motivation, or if they do make it to that 10th day, they would have put so much psychological weight into it that going into the next bracket of, you know, 2,000 views to 4,000, it still wouldn't feel like enough. So that's all kind of like the package as to why I really preach high volume so that way you can hit the milestones fast and stay motivated for a sprint of time. Mm. That kind of feeds into a question I had about like, what do you think people misunderstand about TikTok's algorithm? Because it is kind of shrouded in secrecy. Like, you know, like, like many other social media platforms are not they're not popping open the hood and be like, hey, this is how this works. They'll give little nuggets of information, like I said, that are it's kind of basic <laughs> about how Absolutely. things wind up on your For You page. So in knowing your background, knowing that this is something that you've been thinking about for quite some time, what are those other things that you think people misunderstand about how TikTok's algorithm works? 
Yes, that is a great question. I think that the number one thing that I've noticed in just having more of these conversations with people is that a lot of people don't really understand how the user experience of TikTok is so different from other social networks that we've experienced before. And that difference in just the way that it was built goes on to have psychological effects when it comes to how the users use it, psychological effects when it comes to how the content creators use it. And if you can kind of wrap your head around the idea that this is a social network like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but it's nothing like them, when you open the TikTok app, you are inundated with creators that you do not know. At least 50% of the posts on the For You page are from creators you've never seen. You have to click a tab in order to filter all of that through those that you follow. You have to click a tab in order to see those that you follow. So it's completely reversed. The other thing about the TikTok algorithm that is completely different is that it's not only non-linear or non-chronological, it's almost like the post come like sporadically. It's not quite random. I haven't figured out the best word for the decision matrix that determines which videos actually show up on the For You page, mm -hmm. but it's not the most recent and it's not even necessarily the most liked or the most viewed. I was just going to say exactly because I I have things that are clearly popping off. They have like, you know, a million likes on my For You page, but then I've literally had people with videos that have like less than a hundred likes and it's still something that I love. So I'm just like, yeah. how did this get tossed? I mean, I think, I think it's great for smaller creators or people, you know, yes. people who need to or want their content to pop off because it's very easy for something that's already viral to become even more viral. Right. But it's sort of like for the content that's like very like, you know, just starting out. I've always found that so interesting because I absolutely logic would lead you to believe that they would just be promoting the content that is most engaged with, has most comments, most likes. But like I said, I've gotten stuff that has like less than 100 likes pop up in my For You page. Yep. It's so interesting. Yep. And I want to figure out why. Exactly. So that's the thing, right? It's actually beautiful to have come from the era of social media where it is so about kind of like being perfect or getting it right or, you know, knowing your stuff. Now that I'm like on TikTok, when I think back on the way that I used to use social media on the other platforms, it is very much so exactly what you're saying. The more of a following that you have, the easier it is. And as time goes on and the platform grows, it gets harder and harder and harder for new creators. So TikTok, because of the For You page, because this idea of discovery is foundational, it is so much easier for new creators to get a leg up. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're coming from Instagram and you have a million followers on Instagram, you're going to have the same shot as someone who is just starting out at TikTok and has zero and has never been a content creator before. That is my story. I've never been a content creator before. Before I downloaded the TikTok app in November, I didn't have any social media. I deleted all of my social media in 2019. But TikTok presented me with an opportunity to compete with all of these bigger content creators just on value of content alone. And so it's actually really beautiful when you compare it to existing or incumbent social networks because it actually gives the little guys a shot in a way that the other social networks just don't provide. Right, right. And people have said that 
TikTok's algorithm is like exceptionally good at getting to know us, right? So based on your experiments and your background as an engineer, what can you glean about why TikTok's algorithm is so accurate? Yeah, absolutely. So there are all types of things that platforms might use to get to know users. And I would say that the TikTok algorithm is one of the most sophisticated that I've ever observed. It goes as far as to take into consideration your geolocation. And so I have had plenty of people at my apartment complex come up to me and say, hey, I saw you on TikTok. I highly doubt that all of these people are genuinely interested in social studies for adults. That's what my that's what my <laughs> content is about. It's like adult social studies. I highly doubt that my neighbor is into social studies, potentially, but I think that the algorithm probably showed them my video because they knew that we were in the same complex. Um, so I've seen a bunch of different things like that. Again, my husband and I, we live in the same apartment, but we have we have similar interests, but there are some things that are distinctly his interests and there are things that are distinctly my interests. So whenever like there's like a basketball video that comes up on my feed, right? I'm like, how did this get here? And then my husband will walk in and be like, did I send that to you? Or did that just come up? I'm like, nope, it just came up. And so I have observed that the algorithm really does take into consideration your location, the people that you are living with, but also the interests of your followers or following. That's another one that I've really seen. And to that point, I have an ethics question for you at this point. How <laughs> far reaching should the data be when you're thinking about algorithms? Because, of course, they want to, these platforms are trying to get to know you as, as best as they can. And there's a million data points at this point that, you can, that you, you can use. So how far reaching should it be? Because we're, I feel like if we're bumping, we're not even bumping, we're in an ethical quandary at this point. So like, how far reaching should it be? You know, that is an amazing question. Whenever we're talking about the data that's being collected, we have to understand that the less data that is collected, the greater the likelihood is that the content that we are being shown is not tailored to us. The more that the algorithm knows about us, the more likely it is that we will be seeing a video that we love when we first open the app. And the two have an interconnected relationship. You, you can't take one without kind of taking from the other. And so I think that it is an ethics question, but I think that it, it it doesn't necessarily have to be. You know, there could be a number in theory where, you know, these companies might say, we're only going to collect 5,000 data points and we're going to swap them out. So if we learn something new about you, we can take this one out. There could be a cap in theory. There are all types of creative things that the algorithms could do. Like, for example, the algorithms could show us at least the data set that they are collecting on us. And perhaps there could be some sort of appeal process for where we say, hey, don't show me Trump stuff. <laughs> there could be a process in place to say, hey, do not show me anything about X, Y, Z. So there are creative solutions, but I'm humble enough to understand that perhaps any like the solutions that I have just proposed wouldn't work for a number of reasons. I think it's just going to be a balance game. You know, what are what are these companies willing to sacrifice in order to have a better relationship with users? And at the same time, what are users willing to sacrifice in order to have 
more control over their data. Are we, are we willing? Uh, so I'll, I'll throw the question back at you, you know, are we willing to sacrifice, you know, that kind of guaranteed experience of, you know, you open your TikTok app and you got 17 videos and at least one of them is going to make you smile, laugh, cry, think, are we willing to give that up and gear towards a more mediocre experience? I, I don't know. Do you think that these platforms should be more transparent with how their algorithms work? Because I know that there's a lot of people who have really been pushing for it. I mean, this is something that Elon Musk says that he's going to be doing with Twitter is like having the the algorithm and how it all works, like let's pop the hood, let's show everyone how it works. Do you think platforms should be doing that, should be more transparent with their users and saying like, hey, this is how our algorithms function? (sighs) You know, that is a complicated question. Break it down for me. Yeah. Okay. So I think that the answer that we all want to say is yes, right? There should be transparency. There should be some element of democracy, I think. Like there have been a few times in my TikTok experience where something has happened. Like like I'll post a video and it's like under review for like a reason that I don't understand and I can't really reach out. There's no one to actually reach out to. There is a lot of room for improvement because a lot of people have no choice but to assume that they have been shadow banned or but to assume that their account has been hacked. And like as an engineer, I can understand that that might not be the case under the hood. There might just be an algorithm that's getting something wrong, but we need to let the users know that because there are real emotional and psychological effects that happen to people when they're left in the dark. Um, And so I would say that the answer is yes, but it's a little bit more complex than that. And I'm going to give a really quick story if I can. So my husband and I, we we like to make um, iOS apps. That's like what we do for fun. That's like our date night. <laughs> that is um, so into the- <laughs> nerdy and adorable. I love that it's for you so too. So nerdy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so he's he's into data science. I do the iOS. And together, we decided to come up with this app where we were delivering relevant topics of discussion into group chats. And the idea is that the algorithm would learn about your group chat and the content and the topics of discussion that were then presented into the group chats got better and better and better. So when we first released this product, we had the ability for users to understand the data points that we were storing on them. So, um, you know, you would answer a question and we would say, okay, Casey likes football. Let's remember that. Someone else would say soccer. We say, okay, Casey's friend likes soccer. And we were storing all of these things and we were being very transparent with the users about it. And we said, hey, this is the information that we have on you. Um, And we also gave them the ability to edit it. So like, let's say, someone had mentioned interest in soccer, but they were being sarcastic. They would have the freedom to then adjust the algorithm and say, hey, let me let me take soccer off of that data set, right? And what we found was that when users have that power, they will use it absolutely. And so we saw a bunch of different group chats never letting the algorithm store any data on them And therefore, the topics of discussion never got better because it was never storing any information. And so I think that that was a really profound thing to see because it it changed my perspective into, into understanding that I do think that there might be a balance between 
allowing the users to control their own experience on these platforms. And while taking into consideration the fact that a lot of users might not know how to deliver that experience to the best of their ability for even themselves. And so it's a complicated question on how transparent things could be, because there is a point of transparency where the app and the platform sinks. There is a tipping point. It's hard to fully understand exactly how these algorithms work. Sure, we have some idea based on obvious metrics like engagement and watch time, but there's still a lot we don't know. And I'm not trying to be too cynical here because look, my For You page on TikTok is everything. It's like flipping channels knowing that practically every other network is gonna have something I love. But I can't ignore the obvious fact that TikTok's algorithm and all the other social media algorithms are designed with retention in mind. The more dedicated eyeballs, the more advertising revenue that comes pouring in. It's just business, right? But what happens when that business model can potentially affect our mental health? Next week, I'll be diving into the impact those endless scrolls can have and how people are trying to break free. That's all for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure you rate and comment as well. We always love hearing from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Matt Toder. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment, Scott Mebus. Scott Mebus.